Today's reading is from the book of John, chapter 6, verses 27 through 29. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Amen. Thank you, James. Um, Good morning, everyone. My name is Dave. Um, I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Tucson, and um, I normally do the bulk of the preaching, but um, I've been taking a bunch of time off lately. No, I've been all over the place, got to be in Nigeria. Then, as we shared last week, um, some of us got to be a part of like a soul care weekend, which was incredibly shaping, and hopefully... Um, we see the fr- fruits of that in, in our church um, over the coming coming months and years. And, um, you know, as we shared a couple of weeks ago that um, three aspects of a, of, a, of a healthy local congregation are that we are um, self-led, self-funded, and self-propagating. And that means that we would raise up leaders from among the congregation to lead and serve here in this local congregation and elsewhere as a part of God's work. And um, one of the things that we get to be a part of this morning that I'm really excited about is one of our, um, our, or actually our, uh, pastoral resident, Jake Wilhelm, who leads the youth and um, does a lot of great things there and is basically spearheaded. Um, He and his wife and a team have spearheaded that ministry that is growing and and, and we're excited about. Well, he's going to preach this morning for the first time um, ever. And... um, yeah, and, and Jake is an incredibly thoughtful and godly um, uh, young man. I guess I could say young man because I'm a lot older. Um, but, uh, but yeah, Jake uh, loves the, the Word of God, and, and I'm really excited for what God has in store for us through Jake this morning. So let's go ahead and welcome up Jake. Well, good morning. Um, Like Dave said, my name is Jake. I've been working with the youth. I'm a pastoral resident here at Redemption Church. Uh, My wife and I have been married for um, coming up on almost seven years now. Um, I, yeah, that's fine. Um, I I grew up here in Tucson, um, and I went to high school, went off to college, told myself, you know, I'm going to San Diego for college. I'm never coming back to Tucson, um, as many of you have probably done. And I did my four years at San Diego and then came right back, and so here I am. Um, and so one of the things uh, that uh, I, I really enjoy about Tucson is you know, it's, it's small, um, and we get to know people. Um, but we're going to be in John 6 this morning, and so if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and uh, open up to John 6. If you don't have a Bible, uh, raise your hand. We've got those for you, um, and so uh, we can get those so you can read it um, in front of you. If you, uh, uh, if you want one in Spanish, we've got those for you as well. Just notify that. Um, if you're getting one of those blue Bibles, we're, we are going to be in John 6. That's page 987, um, to, just to make it easy on you, um, and so go ahead and open up to John 6. Well, let me pray for us, and then we'll dive into it. Father, you are good to us. You are lovely and true, and you 
have the words of eternal life, and so, Lord, help us not to depart from you. As the old hymn of the faith says, let your goodness like a fetter bind our wandering hearts to thee. Lord, take root in us. Do not let us go. Because you are true and you are better than anything else that this life has to offer. And so, Lord, let that be true of us. Um, and let us see you today as we look at John 6, as we look at you of, of being better bread. Lord, help us to be satisfied in you. In Jesus' name, amen. So like I said, I've been married to my wife, Abigail, for almost six years now. And um, for those of you who are getting into that marriage season, maybe you have a fiance, maybe you're looking for a spouse, um, there's something that I've learned from being married for my short number of years, um, is that make sure one of you knows how to cook, because it really helps things. Now, it doesn't matter who knows how to cook, just make sure one of you, now both of you know how to cook and love and enjoy cooking, that's even better, but make sure one of you knows how to cook, and don't tell me, oh, Jake, you know, we're going to live on love. Don't tell me that. As the great theologian Psy from Duck Dynasty says, you can't live on love. You will starve. <laughs> I say this because my wife loves to cook, and she enjoys watching the Food Network, which I thought was a little strange when I first met her, but then I started eating the food that she cooks, and it's, it's incredible. It's delicious. She makes incredible dishes, chicken, beef, steak, you name it, it's delicious. She can even make salads taste good. <laughs> and then we had kids. The parents are laughing because you know what's coming. <laughs> and kids eat what kids eat, and kids like what they like. My wife, the amazing chef, makes us some amazing chicken dinner. And it's got noodles and sauce and pesto and garlic and a bunch of other ingredients that I don't know what, what they are. And, and I love it, and it's delicious. And my kids, they take one bite of it, and they spit it out. Instead, they would rather want toast or plain noodles or mac and cheese out of the box, the blue box, which, let's be real, that stuff is not good. <laughs> I'm blown away by this meal, and all my kids want is bland, boring food. And so we turn to John 6. Today, we look at one of the most popular miracles that Jesus ever performs. And it's also really interesting, other than the resurrection, the feeding of the 5,000 is the only miracle that is uh, accounted for in every gospel. And it's also one of the most lengthy explanations of a miracle that he gives in any gospel. And with all of this, Jesus comes to show us that he is not a means to an end. We do not go to, go to Jesus to get something, but rather, he is the end we seek. We are far too easily pleased. And to show us that Jesus is not a means to an end, we are going to look at this two-day narrative. Jesus provides bread which kicks off this incredible conversation on what it means not to labor for bread that is fleeting or perishing, but instead believe in better bread. So let's take a look at this. We're going to start off chapter 6, verse 1. After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. 
And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went, on, went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of Jews, was at hand. So a large crowd is following Jesus, and the, the later passage will show that this is about 5,000 men. And so if we take into account women and children that are most likely there, our best estimates are somewhere between 12 and 15,000 people are here following Jesus. This is no small crowd. If this crowd of 15,000 people were to go to McHale Center, they could not fit inside the building. So imagine a crowd that large. It's a stadium full of people following Jesus. And if you find yourself driving near the university after one of those basketball games gets out, it shuts down the street. You can't get anywhere because of such a large crowd. So imagine a crowd like this. But Jesus sees them. He sees this crowd. One of the biggest ideas that we've continually been coming back to in this idea of love walked among us is that Jesus sees and he helps and he sees people in need. Jesus sees the crowd and asks Philip, where are these people to eat? Easy question, Jesus. It's just 15,000 people. Where are all these people going to eat? Not only do the disciples not have nearly enough money, but where would they get so much food for so many people? If 15,000 people showed up to McDonald's, we don't really go to McDonald's, especially millennials, so let's choose something that we do go to. If 15,000 people showed up to SACE, all the millennials know what SACE is, SACE would run out of food. There are 15,000 people, there's no money to buy food. And so let's read on in verse 8, because Andrew's got a solution. One of the disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? The solution, hey, there's a boy here, he's got some bread, he's got five barley loaves, which barley loaves, they are the food of the poor. They're not your long French rolls. They're not your giant subs. They are your small little loaves. They're very similar to what we have like English muffins, basically. He's got five barley loaves, and he's also got two fish. And, and again, from what we understand of the Sea of Galilee, which where, where they are, these fish, they're not huge trout. They're really kind of similar to sardines. They're not very large. Five barley loaves and two fish would not be enough to feed this first row, let alone 15,000 people. 15,000 people, five muffins, and two sardines. What John, the author of this gospel, is making clear is that the situation is hopeless. The people are hungry, and there's no money, and there's no food, and there's no hope. Jesus knows that the people are hungry, and it's very clear that they are. How many times have we been content with seeing people in need and looking the other way? Or saying, we will pray for them. John 2 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm, and be filled, what good is that? But luckily for us, Jesus doesn't look at this crowd and say, oh, I'm going to pray for you and go about his way. But instead, he sees their need 
and does something about it. So look at, let's look at verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down, and there was about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. And so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets of fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who are eaten. So I don't know how this happens. John doesn't really explain how this happens. But Jesus breaks the bread and just starts passing it out. And imagine our stadium analogy, somebody walking through and passing out bread to an entire stadium worth of people, 15,000 people, and everyone has enough, and everyone eats their fill. Jesus provides what the people need, and everyone has enough. Do not worry, God provides. One of the largest ideas that is communicated in the Bible is that Jesus provides, and God provides what you need. So trust. Thank you. Now, we have to do something about this because one person feeding 15,000 people doesn't normally happen. Did this really happen? He feeds these 15,000 people. And one thing we have to note is that this story, this account is written by John. John is known as the beloved disciple. He spent years in close proximity with Jesus, and he's standing right here as this happens. When I was in college, uh, I, had, uh, I was a history major, and I had the privilege of interviewing a Pearl Harbor survivor. And he was aboard the USS West Virginia, uh, which was next to the Tennessee and Battleship Row. He told me the story of that day, how he was getting his hair ready to take a nurse out on a date to the nearby roller skating rink. And then he heard the noise and the explosion. And he told me that men on the West Virginia, what they did is they turned the large cannons, the large guns, over to the Tennessee, and some of the men, like this survivor here, they climbed out onto the barrel, jumped down onto the Tennessee, and then were able to make it to safety from there. It's an incredible story, and I was amazed by the, the chance that I got to hear it. But never once did I think to myself, this guy's making it up. This veteran saw Pearl Harbor firsthand as an eyewitness. And same thing here is happening with John. He's standing here watching this happen. And he's watching Jesus feed thousands of people. Another way to explain this, this idea of feeding these 5,000 people, is say, okay, this little boy, he brought his five barley loaves, and then that encouraged the next person to bring their snack, and then the next person brought their snack, and on and on and on, and next thing you know, you have a potluck and everyone gets fed. But as we see here, John is clearly showing that there's no other bread in this story. He, Jesus takes the loaves, the kids' loaves, and he breaks the loaves, and he shares and um, feeds the 5,000 with the loaves. Jesus provided this bread, and it's amazing. And the crowd thinks, thinks this is something amazing, too. They were hungry and hopeless, and Jesus fed them. And they respond with their full bellies in verse 14, this is the prophet who has come into the world. 
hey, this sign, and we'll talk more about signs later, this sign is incredible. This is amazing. The sign that Jesus did, they see it and say, this is who we are waiting for. And if you notice here in your Bibles, uh, in verse 14, uh, prophet, it's got a capital P. That, that what they're saying is this is the Messiah. This is the Old Testament Messiah. This is who we've been waiting for for centuries. This is him, and this is amazing. They receive the bread, and they see Jesus for who he really is. Well, sort of. Because as we continue on in our verses, it says that they were going to take Jesus by force and make him king. And so Jesus, that's not why he came. And so he's able to uh, uh, calm the crowd down. And so he's able to send the crowds away. And it's nighttime. And the disciples get on a boat and they leave. And we're going to come back to what's going on with the disciples at night a little bit later. But the crowd goes to sleep. Because something else amazing is going on as well. So let's jump down now to verse 22. Morning dawns. They ate, they went to sleep, morning dawns. The people wake up, they feel the cool morning air, the birds whistling in the distance. It is a perfect morning. And then the people realize their problem. Where's Jesus? They look around and they start to panic. Jesus is gone. They suddenly realize how hungry they are again. They rush to the other side of the sea. They get in boats. It's a Dunkirk situation here. They are trying to find Jesus. Someone shouts, there he is. Hope is regained. Breakfast will soon be here. And so let's see what happens in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus doesn't answer their question, but he gets right after it. He gets after their hearts. He knows exactly why they are following him. The crowd is following and searching for Jesus because they were hungry. They wanted food. They viewed Jesus as their own personal drive through He can provide us food. Let's follow him around. So I have to ask us redemption. Why do we follow Jesus? Do we follow him because we want something from him? Do we follow Jesus because he gives us something? Do we follow because he will provide food for us in some way? Because we want God's blessing in our lives? Because we want stuff? We live in the most affluent country in the history of the world. So maybe our needs are not physical or stuff or food. Do we follow Jesus so we can be protected from cancer or other sickness? Do we follow Jesus because we want our kids to be good people? To find a good husband because we want respect, because he makes us feel good. Now all of these are good things. Good things to care about, but if we are seeking Jesus and following Jesus because we truly want something else, That means Jesus is a means to some other end. We want Jesus for something else. And we have a problem. And Jesus explains what this problem is, and we pick up in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, 
but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Jesus says, do not work for the food that perishes. For the food that perishes, that is fleeting, that is gone today, here today rather, and gone tomorrow. As these people are seeking bread, for Jesus, uh, bread from Jesus, he sees the opportunity to show them that their desire for food is misplaced, controlling them and forcing them to panic. Now, I think we can interpret this passage, this verse, a little bit diff- uh, incorrectly, so I wanted to break down some of the ideas and misunderstandings of what Jesus means by do not work for the food that perishes, and what Jesus is telling the crowd and us to do. First of all, Jesus saying do not work for the food that perishes does not mean do not work. He's not saying, all right, your food's perishing, so just not work. Quit your job and move on. That's not what he's saying here. Jesus is not saying quit your job because the food you are earning is ultimately perishing. Throughout scripture, we are called to work, and even God uses our jobs to benefit and bless those around us and use our means to, to be, um, uh, uh, provide for the people near us. He's also saying that food and stuff in our situation here is not inherently bad. So don't hear this and say, all right, everything I own is perishing, so I'm going to go all Marie Kondo, and I'm going to get rid of everything that doesn't bring me joy, and I'm going to get rid of it. However, I would argue that maybe we need to reconsider our attachment to food and stuff and things. What he is saying, though, is don't let our food or stuff or anything that is perishing control you. Food can be delicious and help you grow and heal and continue to be alive. But if you leave yogurt outside for a day, it's not going to help you anymore. Do not wrap your lives around something and commit your entire life to something that is ultimately going to perish, to leave. You cannot take it with you. What Jesus is saying to the crowd and to us is do not build your life on a foundation that is crumbling, that is fleeting here today and gone tomorrow. There was a TV show years ago, and I don't think it's really on anymore. If it is, I don't know because I don't watch MTV, but there is this show called Cribs. Some of you might remember Cribs. The show was amazing. <laughs> they went to different famous people's houses. They went to athletes. Uh, they went to actors. They went to basically anyone who was famous and rich and was willing to do this show. They went to their houses. And they walked them around, and the entire episode was looking at this person's house, this very, very rich person's house. If they were doing my house, it would take us five minutes to go through my house. But they would go to the garage, they'd go to the backyard, they'd go to the bedroom, they'd go to the kitchen, they'd go to the refrigerator. Those refrigerators were stuff of legend. (laughs) I always remember sitting there and watching this show and being like, I want a refrigerator like that. They only have things that are bad for us, like a bunch of Dr. Peppers and everything. So they would go through this. And eventually, though, everything in that house is going to perish. It's going to break down. The food gets eaten. After years and years, the walls begin to crack, and eventually those houses can no longer be lived in. One of the ways that I saw this was a few years ago. We were in Oregon for a wedding. 
and our family rented out a, a, a cabin, and it was an amazing cabin. It, it had a wraparound porch, a, a big stone fireplace, big kitchen. You go out onto the porch, and it looks down onto this field, and at the bottom of the field, uh, there was a pond, and you could go fishing. There was a dock, and it was just an amazing place to be. As we were staying there, a family member told me a story of the lady that owned the house. This couple worked hard for years and years and years to get enough money to buy the field and then years and years and years to build this log cabin. Cabin took a long time, but eventually everything was completed. It was time to retire and live in the cabin that they had worked so hard for. Three months after moving in, they found out that he had cancer. And within six months, he was gone. The house was too big for her to live in, and so she rents it out on Airbnb. What Jesus is saying to not work for, this idea of perishing, is the hope of our culture. It's a hope of America. Go to school so you can get a good, so you can go to a good college, and then you can get a good job, and so you can make money and then retire and live a life of ease and then die. And this concept has infected American culture and infected the American church. If you go to Barnes & Noble and you go to the Christian section or if you go to the book section of Target and you go to that Christian area where they have Christian books, one of the biggest ideas that you will see is that if you believe in Jesus, you will get stuff. You will have health, you will have wealth, you will have money, and everything you need and nothing will ever go wrong. But oh, how this passage destroys the idea that if you believe in Jesus, you will get stuff. Our culture is infected with stuff sickness. And if you were to look in the rest of this chapter, we're not going to cover it today. What we see is if you're going to Jesus to get stuff, you don't get Jesus. The crowd was seeking after Jesus because they wanted bread from him. And he shows them the error of their ways. Do not work. Do not commit your entire life for that which is ultimately going to fail you. Jesus shows us a better way. He shows us better bread to seek after. And so look here in verse 27. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. What must we do to be doing the works of God? And so Jesus says, hey, don't work for the food that perishes, but it's implied there, work for the food that endures to eternal life. There is bread that does not perish, and Jesus says he will give it to us. And the crowd responds with an understandable question, what must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus responds to this question, what must we do? This is the work of God, that you believe in him who, him who he has sent. Do not work, but believe. The, question respond, uh, the, 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 the crowd responds with another question. Why should we believe in you, Jesus? Why should we believe in you? What sign do you do that we may see you and believe in you? Our fathers in the Exodus, they ate manna in the wilderness. And as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, this crowd might be getting a little hangry at this point, a little hangry and forgetful. 
Because if we look back in verse 14, it says, when the people saw the sign that he had done. It's a day later, and they're asking him, what sign do you perform? Now, if I was Jesus, I'd be like, I just gave you bread yesterday. This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Now, this is the next day. Is Jesus better than Moses? This crowd is asking themselves. Because in the wilderness with Moses, they had manna, they had bread every day. And let me tell you what, Jesus, yeah, it was amazing you gave us bread yesterday, but today I'm hungry again, so I need another sign. Signs are always meant to point us to Jesus. Signs like the provision here of bread, walking on water, water to wine, healings, etc. Every miracle that Jesus does is meant to lift our eyes to the one who is performing the miracle, not on the miracle themselves. Our eyes are meant to rest on Jesus. But the crowd has flipped it. They are so focused on the bread, they are so, so focused on the food, they want Jesus to be their spiritual vending machine and get food whenever they want. But Jesus responds with something better in verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. The crowd replies, give us this bread. They still want food. They still want bread. Man, if I could just have some of that heaven bread, that would make everything better. It sounds amazing. I want that food. The crowd continues to want something from Jesus, but Jesus explains they need something more than just bread. And as we looked at a couple of weeks ago, in Jesus' response to temptation, he says, man cannot live on bread alone. And Jesus is trying to show them they need more than bread. And Jesus makes clear what this better bread is in verse uh, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. This is better bread. Jesus is better bread. He is the bread of life. And he's the bread of life because he is eternally all-satisfying. First, Jesus is all-satisfying. The crowd is looking for temporary nourishment, but Jesus is trying to show them that he himself is all they will ever need. Have you ever felt like these people scrapping and clawing for food or for a paycheck or working hard every day, desiring something for years and years and years, only to receive it and thinking it's not that awesome, and then wanting something else. You worked hard through college to finally get a job, and then you find out that nine-to-five life really isn't all that fun. Or you work and desire for a spouse and find out that spouse doesn't completely satisfy you. So you work and desire for kids, and you find out kids don't completely satisfy you. And so you work and desire for the kids to turn 18 and leave, (laughs) and that doesn't completely satisfy you. And then you work and desire for retirement, and then you find out that that doesn't completely satisfy her. The reason why you are not satisfied in these things is because they do not have the capacity to satisfy you. Only Jesus does. Psalm 16 says, In your presence 
In God's presence, there is the fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And who sits at the right hand of God? Jesus. Every other pleasure we seek is going to leave us dissatisfied because it's fleeting. It's perishing. If you look to Jesus, trust in Jesus, I promise you, you will never find yourself thirsty for more. Never hungry for more because he is the only person in the universe that can satisfy the human heart. He will exceed your expectation of what it means to find joy. Savor Jesus above all else. To kind of emphasize this uh, idea, I have a quote from Charles Spurgeon. He's a, he was a pastor in the late 1800s in London, and he says it here. It is not possible, Jesus, that he should cast a soul that clings to the great high priest. Oh, if you look to Jesus, that eye of yours shall never lose its sight. If your heart clings to Jesus, that heart of your, yours shall never lose its life. If your soul joys in Jesus, that soul of yours shall never lose its joy. Jesus is not only all-satisfying. He's eternally all-satisfying. Look at the finality with which he speaks about those who find their hope in him, starting in verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus is eternally all-satisfying because you can never lose Jesus. Everything else is perishing, but Jesus stays forever. Everything else you put your hope in to satisfy you, you can lose. But you can never lose Jesus. If you orient your life around food, as this crowd is, you will constantly have to find more. If you put your satisfaction in wealth and money and having everything you need, you're one stock market crash away from losing it all. And when you die, you can't even take it with you. But you could say, oh, Jake, but we have the pyramids. They've lasted for a long time. Well, let me tell you what, the pharaohs who built those pyramids, they're not enjoying them anymore. But Jesus can never be taken away from you. Nothing can separate you from the love of Jesus, from the satisfaction in Jesus. No matter what happens, you can lose everything else, but you can never lose Jesus. Because, as it says here, Jesus will never lose you. If you believe, he will never let you go. To emphasize this, there's a famous uh, passage from Romans chapter 8 that I wanted to read you on whether or not we can lose Jesus. Romans 8.35. It's going to be on the screen, or you can listen along. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine? Famine. These people are hungry. Can famine separate us from Christ, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, 
nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Everything else promises satisfaction, yet does not deliver, but only Jesus can. So take your desires that you have for everything else and place them on Jesus, because he's the only one who can truly satisfy you. And so I want to turn our attention to what happens the night in between this feeding of the 5,000 and then this conversation. So look back here, starting um, in verse 16. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Again, this is the night in between the feeding and then this conversation. The disciples went down to the sea, got in the boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, and a strong wind was blowing. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea. And they were frightened. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. And then they were glad to take him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at land with which they are going. Now this description of Jesus calming, walking on water and calming the storm is really interesting because it doesn't actually say that Jesus calmed the storm. He got in the boat and immediately they were there. And so I had to ask the question, why is John putting this, this story of Jesus walking on water in the midst of this kind of bread conversation? We've got bread at the beginning, bread at the end, and in the middle of this bread sandwich, or I guess just sandwich, um, we have Jesus walking on water. The dads are laughing there. We've got Jesus walking on water. Now, walking on water is impossible. And I know this because I tried in high school. Our neighbor had a pool, and I tried to walk on water, and I didn't make it very far. It's impossible. But when he was in the boat, they were suddenly in land. And so to figure out why John put this in this conversation of bread, I think we have to look to the last verse. Then they were glad to take him into the boat. The storm is raging all around them. These men are frightened. They're fishermen. They know these storms. They know the danger that they're in. And they see Jesus. And they want him in the boat. When we saw the crowd wanting Jesus, these 15,000 people, They always wanted Jesus for something. Either they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick, and so they decided to follow him, or they followed Jesus because they got the bread. But with the disciples, it says that they were glad to have Jesus in the boat. Because if Jesus is in your boat, it does not matter that the storm is raging around you. If Jesus is in your boat, it does not matter if you lose everything. If Jesus is in your boat, you will have everything you ever need. To finish up, the last reason why Jesus is eternally all-satisfying is because this bread of life, the eternal bread of life, he died. The bread of life was broken on the cross. Jesus, who gave bread to this 15,000 people who walked on water, died upon a cross. Because our biggest need was not food. Or stuff, or money, our biggest need was salvation from sin. And for the last few weeks, we've been going through how love walked among us. 
And it would not have been loving for Jesus to come, give us some temporary food, temporary satisfaction, and then leave. But instead, he comes and provides what we truly need. In order to be the Savior we needed him to be, he needed to go to the cross. To the cross. There, the eternally all-satisfying bread of life was broken so we could be satisfied for the rest of eternity in the presence of Jesus. I have two ways for us to move forward. First, desire more. To give you an idea of what this looks like, uh, uh, I have a quote up here by C.S. Lewis. He's the author of the the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, This quote is from The Weight of Glory, a phenomenal book. I highly recommend it. But in it, he says, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Like my kids who want plain noodles when they have an amazing dish offered to them, we are far too easily pleased. Do not treat Jesus as a means to an end because anything else will not satisfy you. Instead, look to Jesus as your hope. Desire Jesus as your hope. Be satisfied in Jesus above all else. Secondly, we take communion every week, reminding us that the bread of life was broken for us and his blood was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And so Christian, as you take communion, as surely as you taste the bread in your mouth, you can know the bread of life was broken for you. You can know that you were forgiven by Jesus. So come and be satisfied in Jesus alone. Let's pray. Father, we constantly want more. So Lord, show us more. Show us your infinite joy. Show show us your infinite love that we may be satisfied in you. Help us to seek you for you, not as a means to an end to something else, but help us to seek you for you. Because if you are in our boat, it does not matter what's going on around us because you are love and you are true and you will not let us go. So again, root deep in us and do not let us go for you are good. In Jesus' name, amen.